0: So we've come through chapter 14 into chapter 15 last week. This week we'll pick up in verse 14 of chapter 15. If you can follow all that, we're coming to the conclusion of the lengthy study in the book of Romans, a 16-chapter letter, and Paul turns the corner now. He's not so theological, not so doctrinal. What we begin to see is just how the Word of God has worked out in Paul's life, specifically in the area of trade-offs and priorities. He begins to share with the church in Rome why he wrote the letter, why he was compelled to write to them, and then to tell them of his future plans of ministry and how they can be part of his future ministry plans. And in the context of all that, we get some, not necessarily theological lessons, but some practical lessons about how our understanding of Jesus and His call in our life affects the way we make choices on an everyday basis. I think we all could admit that there's been a rise in the number of books written about how to help us make choices, how to prioritize in life. Have you seen some of those? Some of the ladies in the church studied Lisa Turkhurst's book, The Best Yes. I have a book that I got, it's not a Christian book, called Essentialism. There's books on margins and overload syndrome by another author. There's all kinds of books on this topic. And so we recognize that we now have so many choices inflated by the use of the Internet that it's very hard for us to decide between this and that. What do we do? Which do we choose? How do I know? There's so many choices that I find people struggle and flounder and become sort of paralyzed in their lives because they just don't know which way to go. So we get some real lessons in that, how to plan what it looks like in the life of the Apostle Paul, what are our priorities, how does he prioritize, there's three things you can look at to know where your priorities really are. There's one thing to say, here's what I prioritize, here's what's important to me, but your calendar, your checkbook, and your contact list will really show your true priorities, The priorities of relationships, the priorities of time, the priorities of money, these kind of things are demonstrated. And we'll touch on all of those in this last section of chapter 15. We've already talked about it at the first section of chapter 15, how to deal with trade-offs. You guys know what I mean when I say trade-offs, right? You can't do everything. So in order to do this, I have to give up doing that. And deciding which is this and which is that turns out really important for us to live effectively, in our lives. So back at the beginning of chapter 15, we realized and talked about the fact that sometimes in a relationship, there's conflict. There's conflict of desire. You want one thing and I want another. And we can't have them both. They're mutually exclusive. Let's say it's your family vacation and you're on the way to Florida and there's five people in the van all together. And then you turn the radio on. You see, we avoid that because everybody's got headphones now. But imagine a day when all you had was one radio in the car, and Uncle Bob wanted to listen to this, and Aunt Clara wanted to listen to that, and you can't all listen to the same thing on one radio, so someone has to yield. Well, it turns out, Paul says that when there's a conflict of desires, the strong person is the one who yields their desires. We're not talking about matters of sin or righteousness. We're talking about matters of choice. That the strong person is the one that says, you can have your way. In the conflict, The relationship is more important than your desires. That was the first trade-off that was made. Now we're going to see some other trade-offs as we go through in chapter 15. Starting at verse 14, Paul says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That was a huge couple of sentences, and I want to help break those apart. So what Paul has said is, look, here's why I wrote my letter. God has given me a role in my life. He's given me a calling in my life. It's a unique, a special calling that God gave Paul when Paul was saved on the Damascus Road. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before he shares that, that first sentence, that first verse, verse 14, he says some things that are really encouraging to them. He wrote to them, he says, pretty boldly, right? Did you see that in verse 15? I have written to you more boldly on some points. Think back to what we've been studying in the book of Romans. Think back to chapters 1, 2, and 3, how Paul had to go through great lengths to dissolve the thought That somehow coming to God for them would be based on their religious routine or their heritage as Jews or any other way. that They wouldn't come by their works. They would come by the grace of God. And he said some pretty tough things. He said some things that maybe would have been hard for them to hear. Chapter 2, a verse that I always think about is he said to them, You are inexcusable, O man, you who judge another and do the same thing. He calls them to the carpet. He calls them to task about their own hypocrisy. You see, because judging what someone else does doesn't make you righteous. So he has to talk to them kind of hard through the book. And he says, I've done that because I needed to make sure that the Gentiles and the Jews all coming together in one congregation, I need to make sure that happened because of my calling to work among the Gentiles. And I wanted to make sure there was room in the church in Rome for Jews that become Christians as well as non-Jews that have become Christians. He doesn't say, I had to write because you guys are losers and you don't know anything. I can't believe you're so ignorant I had to write this to you. He says, no, I'm confident, just as I would say, I'm confident of Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna. I'm confident. I know you guys. You guys are full of goodness. You've been growing in your knowledge of the Lord. I know that about you. But there's sometimes where you need to be reminded about something. It's not that you didn't know it. It's that you need to be reminded. And Paul even says that, Even though I wrote, I wanted to speak in on this. I wanted to share my thoughts on this. But you know what I know? That even if I didn't, I'm confident that you guys are able, did you see it right there? To admonish one another. When is the last time that you used the word admonish in a sentence? We don't use that word. So that means that when we read that word in my New King James Bible, we ought to take a minute to explain what that means. But before I do, I like that he says, you admonish one another. Can we focus on the one another for just a second? Did you know I printed out a list that there are 59 one another's in the Bible. Let me just run through a few of them. Mark chapter 9 verse 50 says be at peace with each other. John 13:34 love one another. That's John 13:34, 35 and 15:12 and 15:17, all those places love one another. Romans 12:10 be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 16 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. You don't have to take that one seriously. First Corinthians twelve twenty-five, have equal concern for each other. Galatians five thirteen, serve one another in love. Galatians six two, carry each other's burdens. Ephesians four thirty two, be kind and compassionate to one another. Philippians two three, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Ephesians five twenty one, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, the life of the church has to avoid becoming church-centric. And when I say church-centric, what I mean is you are the church, people. The church is not the building. The church is not the church leadership, but the church is you. And sometimes it's easy to look at the leadership and say, well, the leadership needs to do this. The leadership of the church is doing it. The church did this, or the church did that, or the church didn't do this. Wait a second, the Bible puts the emphasis back on you. God says to you, the Christian life is lived out one to another. You have a responsibility to each other to do these things. So we want to avoid becoming church-centric or pastor-centric, that the pastor has to do all these things. And part of this list is that you would instruct or admonish. The Greek word is uh, nutheteo. You don't have to know that unless you know of a man named Jay Adams. Jay Adams wrote some books on counseling. He calls it neuthetic counseling, meaning counseling from the Word of God. There's a difference between a Christian counselor, a Christian person giving instruction, because it may or may not be biblical. Just because the person is a Christian doesn't mean they're giving you biblical instruction. Neuthetic counseling, or counseling that is based on this passage, is from the Bible, that the Bible is opened up. How can Paul say to them, I am confident and I know that you are able, that you have the power to, that you're capable of instructing each other, unless he was confident in the Holy Spirit working in their lives and that they knew the truth. That's what he just said. This is an interesting word. The word nuthateo, I want to explain this a little bit more and then we'll move on. The usage of this word during the New Testament times maintains the concept of using knowledge to give spiritual counseling with the motivation of love and with the aim of maturity in Christ. It means to exert influence upon the will and decisions of another with the object of guiding him into a generally accepted code of behavior or encouraging him to observe certain instructions. Sounds like counseling, right? Maybe you've understood, maybe it's been your thinking that all counseling has to be done by the pastor. Or actually, in our day and age, we have professionals that do those things. In Paul's time, in the church in Rome time, in this early day, they knew nothing of professional paid counselors. Radical, isn't it? He says to them, I am confident. Jay Adams says, competent to counsel. I'm confident that you are competent to counsel each other. What that means, you confront someone with love and gentleness and from a heart of concern for their well-being and their walk with the Lord in order to produce change for their benefit. But see, the reason I highlight this is because this is completely and utterly against our American culture. And when we have a conflict between culture and the Word of God, guess which one has to go? You put American culture aside, and you say, wow, this is what God is calling us to do. God is calling us that within this body, How does a body stay healthy? A body doesn't stay healthy because it never gets disease. I mean, if a body never got disease, it would be healthy. But healthy bodies are attacked by disease. A healthy body knows how to fight disease. And a body stays healthy when all of those participating in it take a responsibility in the instruction and sharing with each other. Not out of pride or condemnation, but out of care and concern if you love someone and you see them blowing it royally you go to them with gentleness and humility and you say man look i see what's going on in your life like this is not lining up with Christ i'm concerned about you and you go humbly and this is one of the one another's that takes place in the body of Christ but pastor Steve i don't know the bible that well we'll get to know the bible how are you going to counsel your children if you don't know the bible How are you going to admonish your children with the Word of God if you don't know what the Word of God says? I've belabored that point. Paul gives them some wonderful compliments. He said, look, if you see someone who's not acting or behaving rightly in terms of favoritism or Jew and Gentile, I know that you guys could correct that yourselves. But I just wanted to add my voice to this because of my calling to the Gentiles. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. He says, therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God because of this calling of his, because he knew that he knew that he knew. Acts chapter 10 tells us the apostle Paul on his way to do damage to the church. God stops him in his tracks and changes his life. And what Jesus says to Paul of Tarsus, this is going to be your mission. I want you to be a voice. I want you to be a missionary. I want you to go out and reach out to the Gentiles and to kings and to the Jews. But the first priority in that list was to the Gentiles. And so Paul understood that his particular calling was to non Jewish people. He went to the synagogues, he preached there, but his primary focus was to the non Jewish people. And because he knew that, because he understood the priority for his life that God had spoken to him, and he pursued that first, other things had to go in his life. Other things had to be cut out so we could do what God called him to do. And he says, therefore, I have reason to glory, not in myself, but in who? In Christ Jesus. He would never be doing what he did. There'd be whole generations of families, whole generations of people that would never have known about Jesus unless Paul had taken the message and taken him there. Remember what Paul said, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And Paul knew that. He knew that when people, if people could hear, if people could think, if they could be confronted with the truth, then they'd at least have to think about it. They'd at least have to consider it. And so he says, therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and in deed to make the Gentiles obedient, and he gives some examples, and mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So Paul's sort of giving, not his resume, but his accomplishments. When someone asks you about your accomplishments, when someone talks to you about the things that you've been ambitious for, you know... I get a little bit concerned in the body of Christ. I see a lot of Christians with a lot of ambitions, but a lot of those ambitions are worldly ambitions. I'm not saying you shouldn't have ambitions to become a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or whatever else, a teacher, whatever other ambitions that you have. Those are all fine. But there's a lot of other things we're pursuing, church, let's be honest. And I understand, you know, we're pursuing ambitions about doing this great task, accomplishing this great feat. And so when we talk to someone, we say, well, here's what I've accomplished. And Paul says, I'm going to glory in the things which pertain to God. We glory in a lot of things that pertain to us and to my earthly temporary accomplishments. You know, the world is making it harder for us, making it harder for people, because now life happens 24-7. used to be Sunday, the world let us be free to go to church but now the world is saying, I want Sunday too. And now it's putting Christians in a place to make a choice. We've always been in a place to make a choice, but we could sort of sidestep it a little bit. But the battle is heating up. The world is challenging us. And John in 1 John says, you can't love God and the world. Because the thing you love is the thing you want more of, the thing you pursue. It's your passion. Did you know the word amateur means to love, means for the sake of love? Professionals, do something because they get paid to do it. And sometimes you start as an amateur and then you become a professional and that's okay. But there's a lot of people doing things just because they love to do it, just because they have a passion about it. And a lot of us in the church, that's where I started. I didn't teach the Bible because I got paid. I started teaching the Bible because God saved my life. He spoke to me in this word. I wanted others to hear. People would listen when I talked, which really boggled my mind. They cared what I had to say about God. And now praise the Lord. I'm able to do it as a full-time thing. I'm not a professional. I still teach the Word of God because I love it, because I love the Lord. So the things you do as an amateur, the things you pursue for love. What Paul did, he did for the love of God and for the love of people. Let me ask this question. What are you going to say? What are you going to say when you present God the things you were ambitious for? Well, God, you know, I sold more of my widgets than anybody else sold. God's going to say, so what? Widgets are temporary. You don't know how much money I'm leaving to my kids for their lives, how much inheritance I'm going to leave for them. God will say, well, they're going to fight over it anyway. It happens all the time. When Paul stood before the Lord, you know what he had to show the Lord? People. People. Lord, here's the people that I told. Here's the people that are now saved eternally through your work, through me. All the other things you do just contribute and give you ways to tell people about Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. And God confirmed that. Mighty signs and wonders. God used Paul in amazing ways. And the danger for us is to go, well, that was Paul, but I'm me. God can use you in amazing ways too if you're spiritually ambitious. So Paul says, I was so into and so following what God had called me to do that I preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And you go, Steve, that sounds great, except I don't know where Illyricum is. This is Eastern Europe. If you look at a map at Italy and let your eyes track toward the east of the map or toward the right of the map, you'll see the coast of the Adriatic Sea, countries like or places like Croatia, Bosnia, Kosovo, just north of Greece. Because of one man, you think one man can't accomplish great things for the Lord when they set their mind to following him? 1,400 miles of coverage and leaving churches behind and the worship of Jesus behind. i blanketed that area and preached the gospel of Christ. And this is why. This is why he could accomplish meaningful, eternal things because he decided to and his decision to was fueled by the word of God. Watch this. He says, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Imagine at one time Paul sits down to read Isaiah. Paul, So much of Paul's theology comes out of Isaiah his understanding of the mission to the Gentiles. And so there is Paul. He's just having his personal devotional time. He said, I'm going to read Isaiah this morning. I love Isaiah 53. You know, the suffering servant, and by his stripes, we've been healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You know the passage, right? Nod your head and pretend you do. Okay, so, you know, he's marking off in his daily reading. I'll read 51, 2, and 3, and I'll really look forward to 53. And as he's reading chapter 52 of Isaiah, as he comes to the end, He sees this verse right here, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard, they shall understand. And the verse jumps off the page of him. So his vision, his calling is further clarified. Not only was Paul going to take the mission to the Gentiles, but he was going to take it to places where there was no other testimony of Jesus. Nobody else was talking about Jesus. Remember, Paul did not plant the church in Rome, right? Say yes. He didn't plant that church. That church was planted somehow after the day of Pentecost. Jews from Rome had been there. They got saved. They go back to Rome and they take the message of Jesus there. So the church starts. Paul didn't plant it. And Paul's not really eager to get there because there's already a church there. Paul says, my specific calling is to go places. He says, I'm not going to build it on another man's foundation. I don't want to just go somewhere where there's already church and minister there. That's not wrong. I told you in my email, I see churches being planted left and right in Charlottesville. Church on top of church on top of church, and every school's got a church meeting. in it. Is that a bad thing? No, that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. But there are still so many places out there where Jesus has never been heard of. Or there's currently no active, witnessing, Bible-teaching church there. You know, God really cultivated my heart. And People in Charlottesville, they want to know about Jesus, they can find a place. Nobody's really doing anything new. Don't you want people to know what you know? I can't even think about the thought that there's people that live their whole lives and they never hear about Jesus. They just don't know the truth and the light and the goodness and the love. And that was Paul's heart. For me, it was Mark chapter 6, verse 34, just reading the Gospel of Mark, knowing God is calling me into ministry, reading the Gospel of Mark, And when that passage on the multiplying of the bread and the loaves, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And as I'm reading it, I read the sentence that says, and Jesus, when he saw the people, that they were like sheep, not having a shepherd, he had compassion on them and he sat down and he taught them. And so that's why I still sit down to teach. No, it's not really why I sit down to teach. I sit down to teach because my knees shake if I stand up. That's really why. But that verse jumped off the page at me and I understood that the ministry God was giving me was to find people. I meet people in food line. I used to go to church with you, but I, I got burned by my church and now I'm out there floating around nowhere. I don't go to church anywhere. I say, hey, would you come and just hear the word of God? To regather lost sheep. People that have been jaded or burnt. Hey, they're like sheep without a shepherd. So God is giving me this ministry of gathering people back in. When you read the word of God, God then has a chance to speak to you, not just in generalities, but also in specifics. You read it and go, that verse is for me. That's what God wants me to do. It's fantastic. His word is living and powerful, isn't it, gang? So this is where Paul's going. He's not going to build another mound's foundation, not going to bring a church where there's already a church. He's got other things he's pursuing. He's got other ambitions. Oh, I didn't mention this, and I'll mention it now. He said, I have made it my aim. That word is made up of two words in the Greek, love and honor. Love and honor. So to make it your aim to do something is what you do because of the honor attached to it. So for Paul, he says, it's been my aim to do this. I love to do it because of the honor of serving Christ in it. So that became his primary ambition in like everything else he did took a backseat to that primary calling. That's the one thing. If you had to boil your life down to one thing, what is it? What is the primary passion of your life? You can't have two. There's only one primary passion. What is your aim to do? What are you striving for? What are you accomplishing spiritually? Again, I think one of the biggest sins in the church is lack of spiritual ambition. We're willing to just show up be apathetic go home and pursue our deal and ah i would long for 25 30 40 50 100 of god's people right here in this body with spiritual ambitions that says here's what i want to try for the lord i don't know if it's succeed i don't know if the lord's in it but man i'm going to give it a go it's spiritual ambition said you know what i want to do a school for the lord where god is at the center and we don't have to dance around that not taking away from public school teachers you got your own challenges Just trying to highlight, you can have spiritual ambition. That's what Paul did. Let's move on. He clarifies this further. Verse 22 he says, For this reason, I have also been much hindered from coming to you. For what reason? He was hindered from coming to them, not because Satan got in the way or because he didn't have the money to come or because he didn't have time to come. Well, in a sense, he didn't have time because he was spending his time pursuing places where there weren't churches. So, in a sense, And hang with me on this. He says, look, I love you guys, but you're just not a priority. Now we kind of go, whoa, you know, wait a second. Look, I live in pastor land where we're expected to do everything for everybody. It's hard. You know, any pastors get burnt out trying to meet all the expectations of all the people and we just can't do it. And you want to, if you love me, you will set me free to do what God has called me to do. And that is shepherd the flock and teach the word. You see, if I'm so busy running around doing all these side things, I don't get time to study. I don't get time to think and reflect and talk to the Lord about this passage. And so that when I come, I'm just kind of serving up fast food, partially chewed, and I haven't had time. And believe me, I struggle against that. When everybody in the body does what they're called to do, everything gets done, and everything gets done better. So people that love each other, if they love Paul, Paul says to them, look, This is why I haven't come to you. Verse 23, watch what happens. He says, but now, no longer having a place in these parts, I finished my work there, I've been through the whole of Eastern Europe, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, it's not that I didn't love you, I want to come. He says, but whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. Why was Paul's desire to work in Spain? Because he coded Eastern Europe, and Spain represented the farthest reaches of Western Europe. And so even though he says to the people in Rome, look, I love you guys, I want to come visit you, but I have a purpose, my ambition is still greater, I want to go farther. Paul doesn't know anything about retiring and playing golf the rest of his life. Paul's not interested, I mean, not that golf is wrong, but Paul's not interested in fishing or hanging out at the club or whatever, Paul is interested in what more can he do? I've gone here, where can I go next? I've accomplished this, what can I accomplish next? I love people like that. You know anybody like that? You know people like that? Like they just have this zeal and desire to just press forward to just more ambition. That was Paul. I mean, that's not everybody, but I think it could be more people. That's Paul. He says, I want to come to you and now I'm going to have a chance, finish my work there, got this ambition for Spain and you guys will be a great stop on the way. And so why did Paul want to stop to see them on the way? This is what he says. He says, whenever I journey to Spain, I'm going to come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while. I'm going to come there. We're going to hang out together. We'll break bread. We'll enjoy some Bible studies. And they might say, oh, Paul, can't you just stay here? I mean, our pastor's not so good. You know, whatever they might say. You're the apostle Paul. I mean, we want you to stay. But no, people that love each other, listen really carefully, church. People that love each other, set each other free to pursue God's call in their life. No expectation, no guilt, no manipulation. You know, I shared this with the first service, but I feel it's necessary because my one goal is to make sure that Calvary Chapel Fluvana stays, is and stays a Jesus-centered church and doesn't fall into the trap of becoming a pastor-centered church. I mean, I know I'm easy to love, so I understand that. No, no, no. My wife would say differently. You know I'm kidding. But the challenge is, and as I say this, I'm going to clarify again because it never fails. Somebody gets it wrong. I'm not setting you up that I'm called to leave and go plant churches somewhere else now. Okay? But here's what I'm going to say. If I said God is calling me to somewhere else, what would you say? Would you say, praise the Lord, Steve. We'll pray for you. You know, we'll be fine. We still have Jesus. We still have the Holy Spirit. We still have the Bible. We'll have fine. And I'm going to tell you as I say this, coming back from our trips to Italy, coming back from Bonaire, I can tell you that right now, I've never had a stronger understanding that right here is where God has called us right now. That God is doing some really neat things. The Holy Spirit is doing some really neat things right here, right now. This is where we're called to. But... That doesn't mean we get to build the church around me, and you shouldn't. And part of the way I address that is to remind us all that part of love, part of love of God and part of love of people is that we set them free to say, hey, we don't have ownership over each other. If God is calling you away from here right now, we had to say goodbye to Mike and Betty Witt. Off to Africa they went. That was hard, but we knew that we knew we knew. God's calling them there. And we're seeing more of God's people being raised up to love each other here. That's always part of it. But just like the church in Rome, Paul is saying, it's great that you love one another. That's part of it. But the other part of it is when I come, I want to be helped by you. What that means is to be thrust ahead. When I come there, that you guys would be a launching pad for me to go further, deeper into Western Europe. Because you might say, well, I'm not called to go on the mission field. That's okay. You can be called to thrust someone else out of the mission field financially or prayerfully. So that's what he's looking to get from the church in Rome. He wants their help in accomplishing his further mission to Europe, to Spain. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles... The Greek churches, the non-Jewish-based churches, have been partakers of the spiritual things of the Jews, then their duty is to also minister them in material things. The Gentiles benefited from the spiritual heritage of the Jews, and now the Jews are going to benefit from the financial gift that Paul is carrying in their time of need. The Gentile churches got together and said, hey, the church in Jerusalem is suffering. They're poor. They need help. Let's take up a collection and send it to help them there. How many of you know the verse, where your treasure is? That's where your heart is. So the Gentile churches, by giving financially, say, hey, our heart is with you. Can I just make an application here? You know, we don't pass an offering plate. We don't talk about finances, except when they come up in the Bible. And guess what? It just came up. Do you see the word contribution? I don't know what your Bible says, but if you could read it in Greek, you'd know that was the word koinonia, Have you heard the word koinonia before? It's the word where we get communion, fellowship, participation, sharing in something. Many of you guys probably have stocks or money in the stock market. When you buy stocks, it's called having a share. You have a share in something. Do you think that's a coincidence? It's a financial participation in something. Some of you guys participate one way or another way. Part of the way you enjoy, we enjoy communion together is by the financial sharing of the responsibilities for life in the church. Lights are on, air conditioning is on, parking lot gets paved, children's ministry has supplies, there's coffee, there's paper in the copier, bullets are getting printed. It costs a lot of money, unfortunately, to operate the church structure. And the way you affirm that and participate with that is through your giving. That's the way we have fellowship. So this is not my church, it's our church. We all have a share in this in a number of ways. Now you say, but Steve, I don't have a lot of money. If you read back in the book of 2 Corinthians, or if you read forward in the book of 2 Corinthians, you'll find out these Macedonian believers, by the way, Macedonia is northern Greece, Achaia is southern Greece. The Macedonians, they didn't have a lot either. They gave to the Jewish church out of their poverty. They didn't have much, but they wanted to demonstrate that their heart was with them, so they said, I can give something. And so they did. They sent something with Paul. They said, Paul, you're going to be our representative. Take this on our behalf to the people in Jerusalem and tell them we love them. And so, again, that's one application. Another application is just right here. Again, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So by contributing and jointly participating in the financial burdens of the church, we share the responsibility together. Amen, church? Amen. So he's planning to go to Jerusalem and take this offering there. Verse 28 says... Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Did Paul get to visit the church in Rome? Yes or no? Say yes. He did. But do you know how he got there? When he goes to Jerusalem, guess what happens to him? He gets arrested in Jerusalem. And then as a gift, From the Roman government, they take him as a prisoner to ultimately to Rome. He spends two years in prison, and then off he goes in a boat, gets shipwrecked, and then eventually gets into Italy and marches his way up the Appian Way to Rome. And you know what happens about 40 miles outside of Rome? The church hears that he's coming. And guess what? They run 40 miles to meet him. They run out to greet him. We heard the Apostle Paul's coming to Rome. They loved him so much, this mutual relationship. They come out to greet him. Does he get to have fellowship with them? Yes. Does it happen the way he expected? No. Did God preserve him through that? Yes. Did God bring him to Rome? Yes. Did he come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ? Say yes. Yes, he did. Did he ever get to Spain? Don't know. We don't know. Church history, some church historical writings say that, yes, he did. Others, people say, no, he didn't. The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not he did. The book of Acts leads off with Paul doing ministry under house arrest in Rome. So we don't know for sure that Paul ever reached Spain, but did the gospel reach Spain? Amen. The gospel still reached Spain. So let me conclude here. Verse 30 says, now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit. That you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. Did he get delivered from those in Judea who do not believe? Yes, he got arrested, but that arrest actually saved his life. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Did he come to them with joy by the will of God? I would imagine if I was shipwrecked and close to death, drowning in the ocean and all that, that if I made it to land and made it to Rome, I'd be pretty joyful. So I'm going to say yes to that one. Looking forward to resting, recovering with them, and getting some rest time. As you prioritize, final note, make sure you prioritize rest in your life. As Paul finishes out that section with, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen? Amen.